Now, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. And as we said before, it's a record of an experiment he made with life. He tried everything under the sun to see if he could find satisfaction of soul. And in this chapter alone, under the sun occurs about four or five times. Under the sun. And everything must be interpreted in the light of that. Now, he had already tried other things. He tried the pursuit of knowledge. Came to the conclusion, the making of many books, there is no end. He tried pleasure. And the outcome was, I hated life. He tried riches. And he came to the conclusion, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. And then he tried religion. And you either become a lunatic or a racketeer, a crank or a crook, fanatic or become frantic, a nut or a bum. The two routes, if you're going to go the religious route. And then he tried fame. A good name is rather to be chosen. It's better than precious ointment, he says. And then he tried morality. And all he could say is all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Thackeray wrote a wonderful novel called Vanity Fair. If you've ever read it, you know the story of Becky. And he concluded it by telling all of the littleness and the sin in the lives of these people during the time of the wars of Napoleon and how they live little lives apart from God. For Thackeray, by the way, was a Christian. And then he concludes it like this. He says, the play is over. We'll put the puppets back in the box. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. And by the way, you could do that with Hollywood. It's the pleasure capital. It's the sin center. This is the place where there's fame and riches. And this is the place that has the monopoly on sleeping pills. My friend, life is empty without God and without Christ. Augustine gave that famous yet trite and hackneyed expression, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our lives are restless until we rest in thee. The human heart is so constructed that you could put the whole world in it and still have room for something else. And yet when you have Christ... Your heart's not big enough to hold him. Now, look at this chapter here with that background. The most frightening fact about Ecclesiastes, it's the basis for socialism. And, my friend, your country and mine is closer to socialism than you can ever imagine. And this is the only answer to statism, regimentation. What's that? Christ is the answer, and he's the only answer. You can only go one direction without him, and with him there's life abundant. Now, will you notice, I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 9. For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. In other words, he says, I don't know a thing. Art using the common colloquialism of the street, I don't know nothing. That's my position. And that's the position of a great many today. They're not worried about the future eternity. That's a realm they don't enter at all because they know nothing about it. 
Verse 2, "...all things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth, and to him that sacrificeth not, as is the good, so is the sinner." And he that sweareth is he that feareth an oath. In other words, doesn't make any difference what direction you go. You're going to come out the same way. And now, what is the answer to all of this under the sun? Now, understand, this is not God's answer. This is the man under the sun. Verse 3, "...this is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all, yea, Also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. In other words, my friend, you're the victim of circumstances, and therefore we ought to share the wealth. That sound familiar to you today? That's the conclusion you come to under the sun. Don't need to work, but after all, it won't make any difference whether you work or whether you don't. Life is a great lottery. Since you didn't get yours, the fellow that was lucky and got his ought to share it with you. My friend, (laughs) this is the man under the sun. Does that sound familiar to you? Karl Marx never said anything new. Solomon was way ahead of him. Now, will you notice verse 4? For to him that's joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. And the idea is here... Actually, all through this section, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, tomorrow you're going to die. And the fool and the wise men, they just about the same in the long run. After all, a living dog is better than a dead lion. It doesn't make much difference. Now, let's move on down here, because this is something that is tremendous. He says here, "...for the living know that they shall die." But the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Now, this is where that idea of soul sleep arises here. And we have another verse up here, verse 10. And what you have here is the philosophy of the man under the sun. This is the conclusion that he comes to here, that you just well be a live dog. In fact, be better than be a dead lion. So to be a lion or a dog doesn't make really much difference, because when you die, you're just like a dog. That's what the atheist says today. And looking at the human side, the physical side, my friend, when that body goes into the grave for a child of God, that body is put to sleep. That's true. But Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's where the person goes, and you and I just living in these earthly tabernacles today. So you see, this is not even a Christian viewpoint. It's the man under the sun. I heard a man say some time ago, why well, he says man just like a dog. When he dies, that's it. Well, that's what he says here. That's the outcome. Now he says here, also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perish, neither have they any more portion forever in anything that's done under the sun. In other words, this life is very futile. It's very purposeless, very meaningless. You're just an animal. (laughs) Here's evolution with a vengeance. Only it's a little different. What he's saying here is, 
Man didn't come from an animal. Man is an animal. And that's more frightful today because we think we've come from some place and that we are very much on the way, that we're marching to Zion. And it's an earthly one. Now, will you notice verse 7? Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. You're a do-gooder, you see. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And we're going to have our happy hour, you know. And from about 4 o'clock to about 7 o'clock, we all get sows. And that's life. That's living it. Probably the most monotonous life in the world are the folk that are living like that today. Now he says, let thy garments be always white. Let thy head like no ointment. Oh, dress up. (laughs) Keep up a good front. And then it says, verse 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun. And you know, actually, there are many unsaved couples that are enjoying life. No question about that from their viewpoint. I have met several along the route. Oh, they have their problems. They have their dark days. But this is their attitude. Let's make the best of it. All the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor, which thou takest under the sun. Now, will you listen to this? This is another verse that they base soul sleep on. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Well, absolutely, there's not. Because when you put this old body that can hold a hammer and can use its brain to study or to perform some mental chore, when you put that body in the grave, it's not going to be doing those things. In other words, this is the place you're going to make your decisions. But the body has come not to an end, but the body will probably disintegrate, made up of about 16 elements, and the soil's made up of about 16 elements, that body will go right back into the soil. Dust thou art, under dust shalt thou return. He says that concerning the body. But the Spirit will go to the Creator. In other words, you're a person, and you're going to have to answer to God. Now, he'll come to that in the 12th chapter, so that this does not teach soul sleep. It's the viewpoint of the man under the sun. And that is the thing of it. Now, in verse 11, oh, he deals with social injustice and the minority groups and the masses. Listen to him now. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. Life is a great lottery. And if you happen to be born black, you're going to have your problems. And if you're born white, you're going to have your problems. If you're born yellow, you're going to have your problems. It's all chance. Nothing you can do about it. That's the whole thought here. Therefore, the thing to do is to sort of juggle the thing together and let's divide it. Because we're not going to be here very much longer. May I say to you, what a viewpoint of life this is. And let's move on down. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes 
that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of man snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. And this comes right back to that materialistic philosophy. And that is the thing we mentioned the other day, that when you get on a plane on Friday afternoon, as I've done now many times, filled with men, men with briefcases, going home. They're coming here to Southern California. Some have been in Dallas, some in Kansas City, some in Chicago, some in Seattle. Now they're coming home, and they sit there. They're not afraid. Why? Because they have a fatalistic viewpoint of life. Well, one of these men said to me one day, we went through some turbulence, and he says, well, you know, if it's going down, it'll go down. If your number comes up, there's nothing you can do about it. So he just sat back, gritted his teeth, and that's the way he faced life. Man, just like a fish caught in a net. Oh, what an awful viewpoint. That is the worst kind of fatalism, and that is a philosophy we've considered. But the do-gooder has to come to that, you see. There's no other explanation for him. And therefore, this wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed right unto me. Now, will you notice, verse 14, "...there was a little city, and few men within it. There came a great king against it, besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it." Now, come a little closer, Mr. Marxist, and listen. You communists, listen to this. Hear a parable. You want to lift up the burden, the banner of the downtrodden? You want to defend a minority group, the cause of the underdog? Is that the thing that you're interested in? Well, may I say to you, there will arise a dictator. A great king will come against a people that let down their defenses and spend all their time with social problems which unsaved men cannot solve. And they've had now 5,000 years minimum, probably 6,000 years, and it could be much longer than that. And they have not solved the problems of life. How much longer do you think God ought to give man to work these out? Now, we come to verse 15, and I'm reading, "...now there was found in it a poor wise man." And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same poor man. And who was that man that came and brought deliverance? His name was Wisdom. And for the child of God today, Christ has been made unto us wisdom. There was found in it a poor, wise man. And he came down to this earth in poverty. And now he could actually say the Birds of the air have nests, the foxes have oaths, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He was a poor man. Verse 17, the words of wise men are heard in quite more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. The voice of the Lord Jesus will prevail. I think that's always a tremendous thing that is said concerning him. He'll come with a voice, a shout. The voice of the archangel, and that's his voice. Sound of a trumpet, and his voice will be like that of a trumpet. His voice will prevail in this world today. Above the babel of voices, why his voice will prevail. Verse 18, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. And this is a conclusion of all of this in chapter 9 here. Christ is better than atomic energy. Wisdom 
is better than weapons of war. And then one sinner destroyeth much good. The tremendous influence of one person. And it is always more potent when it's in the wrong direction. The effect of your life can be more far-reaching if it's an evil life. And today, think of the effect that certain men from evil are having. Well, let's look at history. Adam's sin has affected an entire race. Achan's sin and an entire nation had a defeat and had to deal with that. Rehoboam, his sin, split the kingdom of Israel. And Ananias and the sin of Ananias and Sapphira brought into the early church the first defect that it had. And from that day on, the church was not as potent as it was at the beginning. Now, wisdom is better than weapons of war. And that's true, actually, in the world today. I crossed the ocean on the Queen Mary. And I never shall forget, we got up early that morning when it came into Southampton. And I tell you, it was, a, I would say, a tremendous feat to bring that great ship into port. And that pilot had brought her across the trackless ocean. How did he do all that? Well, he did it by the principles that were set down by a little-known Greek philosopher years ago working in geometry. That's the way it was done. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And you have influence, whether for good or bad. You and I occupy a place of influence, no matter who you are. No man liveth to himself, no man dieth to himself. You are a preacher. You can't help but be a preacher. I said that to a man once. He lived down the street from the church. He lived with his mother. He was an alcoholic. His mother asked me would I talk to him, and he had broken her heart. And one day I got him into the study. He had had a drink. It was not what you'd call drunk. And I talked to him. I called him everything. I told him how low down he was. I told him that he was absolutely no good. He just sat there and took it all. And I said, did you know you're a preacher? And he stood up and he drew it back his fist and he's going to hit me. He says, you know, you can't call me a preacher. You know, he was willing to be called anything but a preacher. But I don't care who you are. You're a preacher. You are preaching by your life some message to those around you. And that's the reason that I personally believe that the do-gooder today, the man that boasts of his morals apart from God, is the greatest detriment that there is to this country today. Because he stands in the way. He blocks the way to God because he said, live like I do. I'm living without God. I just do good. And there's nothing that's quite as deadening as that. Now, you're a preacher, whoever you are. You're a preacher in the home, in that smallest circle. You're affecting somebody there. It's like that little boy, you remember, that it had been a snowstorm the night before, and his dad got up to go out to the barn. He kept a jug of whiskey hid in the corn crib, and he went out to take a drink of a morning. And he was going out this snowy morning. 
And all of a sudden, he heard somebody back of him, and he turned around, and there was his little son following him, stepping where the father stepped. And the father said, what are you doing, son? He says, I'm following him in your footsteps. And the father was going out to take a drink. Well, he sent the boy back to the house. He went out to the corn crib, got that jug, and broke it because he stopped to think. I don't want that boy falling in my footsteps. There's somebody falling in your footsteps and where you're leading them, even if it's in the home. And now there's the wider circle of human society. You have influence. You have influence in the business world. You have influence in your neighborhood. You have influence in your Sunday school. You have influence. And you have influence in your city. You have influence in your community. You have influence. Somebody's looking at you, friend. Now, they can see that going to church is to you just like dropping by a drive-in to pick up a hamburger when there's nothing else to do. And that's all it means to you. They know whether you mean business with God or not. Does your life suggest to your associates that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun? You have influence. Well, you know, Andrew didn't preach on the day of Pentecost, but he sat on the sidelines and he could say, that's my brother. (laughs) I brought him to Jesus. My friend, may I say to you, one sinner destroyed much good. You today are pointing men to heaven or to hell. Now, if you want to go to hell, that's your business. But you've got no right to lead a little boy there. You've got no right to lead your family there, and you have no right to lead those that are around you today there. Even if you want to go, it's awful to lead others. Influence. What a tremendous chapter this really is.